Learning Curve listeners, I'm back. Gerard is not. I traveled all the way to the other side of the globe, to a different hemisphere, and it still wasn't enough time away for Gerard Robinson. So now he's gone somewhere, somewhere, we don't know, to, as we always say, an undisclosed location. But anyway, we are so lucky to have another fabulous co-host this week. Dr. Robert Maranto is the 21st Century Chair in Leadership in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas, not our first guest from the University of Arkansas, but our first co-host. Bob, thank you so much for joining me on The Learning Curve today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I, I'm going to try to be Gerard 2.0, and I'll, I'll uh, take this opportunity and say if anybody wants to get a PhD in ed policy, we're an amazing program, but but I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> you are an amazing program. It's like, I mean, I can would try and count. I know we've certainly had Dr. Patrick Wolf on and Jay Green's been on, and I'm sure we've yeah. had on graduates of your program as well, and just the quality of research coming out of your department, especially with regard to some of the issues that we care about so deeply in the learning curve school choice. It's just it's phenomenal. I can't tell you how many times in a day, a week, a month, I cite research done either in the department or by graduates of your department. So thank you very much for your great work. That is so great to hear. Thanks so much. Yeah, and it is the truth. Okay, so we, as always here on The Learning Curve, we like to start with a few stories of the week, and I have chosen I've chosen one from the Wall Street Journal on something that we've been talking about, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 100 years. This one is about education funding, and I am particularly curious for your take because not only are you yourself the author of several books and countless articles, but you also edit a journal, among other things, and I know you know a lot about this topic. The title of my article from the Wall Street Journal, written, by the way, by Sarah Randazzo, whose last name I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, is School Districts Battle in Court for Changes in Education Funding. So it's like a tale as old as time in some cases here. But this one focuses really in particular on Pennsylvania, on the state of Pennsylvania, a school funding case that's sort of winding its way through the courts. And listeners, for those of you who have not sat through really sexy courses on school finance and education funding, let's just say a little bit here. A reminder for all of our friends and students that the federal government has no constitutional authority for education in this country. So we have 50 states with 50 different ways of figuring out how they're going to fund schools. Traditionally, a lot of funding has come from the local level, but that has changed in recent decades. We've been litigating school funding cases for 50 years plus in this country. And in many places, the amount of local funding, meaning local property taxes that localities have to kick in to fund schools, has gone down a bit while the state share has gone up. In many cases, due to these education finance lawsuits charging, I'll use the example, like right here in Massachusetts. Oh my gosh, I'm going to date myself in the early 1990s, late 1980s. We had a famous case that charged that the state was shirking its constitutional obligation to provide an adequate education for our students. And it caused a revamp of our school funding formula, coupled with lots of other things like choice and accountability, which are also great. But this case here in Pennsylvania highlights that Pennsylvania is actually one of these states where the proportion of money that localities have to raise in comparison to what the state kicks in remains relatively high. So in Pennsylvania, the state only funds about 38% 
And it's not meaning of the share of education with, you know, usually the federal government, Bob, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but usually it's around nine, 10%. That hasn't changed much, although we could count pandemic relief funding and that's a completely different conversation. So what that means is that localities are still kicking in a good chunk of change in the state of Pennsylvania. And the state's not necessarily weighting its funds to help out those localities that have a harder time generating revenue because they don't raise enough money in property taxes. So all a way of saying that some good folks in Pennsylvania are saying, hey, wait a minute, our schools are under-resourced. Now, I use that word really carefully because they're saying our schools are under-resourced. There was no mention, at least in this article, about student outcomes, but they were really talking about inputs in terms of resources and facilities, buildings collapsing, having to crush, cram kids into one building because the other one was crumbling and deteriorating to the extent that they couldn't have kids in there. It was unsafe. Kids Carol, without libraries. Can I jump in for a second? The, yeah. They never in the, there, by the way, there are 501 school districts in Pennsylvania. <laughs> There's a large number of them. I've done a lot of work in Pennsylvania. They never mention what the mean spending is in Pennsylvania in the whole article, which I thought they were sort of remiss. Pennsylvania is mean, mean spending for traditional public schools, so a little over $18,000 a child, a little over $15,000 a child for charter schools. It's, I think, 11th in the country, and some yeah. of Pennsylvania is high cost, but some is very low cost. And I think it's interesting that nobody ever discusses this here that, you know, can you do an adequate education on $15,000 a year in Pennsylvania, some of the lower spending districts, probably more like 10 or 11. I think the answer is yes, but that is well, not. Well, so that, yeah, that would be one answer. And that's one answer that, right? So I feel like in this country, we have a really polarized debate about mm -hmm. what's, at, I mean, in the question of what's adequate, can you do an adequate education? So we can talk about what's adequate, but that's why I was also really surprised that this article doesn't mention anything about student outcomes, because one yeah. measure of adequacy would be, are kids learning anything? But yet we focus a lot on inputs. And I think, Bob, your point is well taken, because I think about school funding debates is breaking down. They go usually a little something like this. The schools get too much money. They don't yeah. do the right thing with it, right? And then on the right. other side, it's like, give us more, give us more, give us more. There's never enough. Here in Boston, we're spending $25,000 per pupil and kids still can't read. So I take your point, and I think that probably the middle ground, and we need more data on this, to your point, is the truth is probably somewhere in between. It's really interesting, though, too, that Pennsylvania doesn't seem to be engaging in the kind of weighted student funding, at least not in, in a robust way that some states are engaging in. Or, for example, in some states, the state will say, okay, if you can't raise X amount of revenue to get your pupil spending up to what we consider to be an adequate amount, we'll make up the difference. And so that's part of what these lawsuits are based upon, as you know. I'm also thinking, Bob, that here's something that as a parent and as a taxpayer, I want to know. And that's just like, why isn't there more transparency around not just the amount of money that schools are getting, but where it's going? Because I think that to have the debate about, oh, it's they're getting so much money, no more, no more, no more, or give us more, give us more, give us more. We really can't even begin to get to the bottom of it before we figure out how the money is being spent. And it'll be really interesting, I think, to see how this case resolves itself, because as the article points out, these cases are being revived in other places too, one of which is New York, very high per pupil spending there. So I don't know. I'm curious as to your thoughts, Bob, and how you think this one is going to go, and if you could be persuaded 
that we should be thinking more deeply about the transparency and where the money's going versus just saying, nope, they're getting enough for people spending is high. Let's be done with it. What do you think? I think that we're not going to get transparency. because um, The education law on both the state and national level is so complicated that I was on a school board for five years. We had about $115 million budget, I think, my last year on the board, which is 2020. And I'm also on a charter board, which are, I think we spend about $11 million a year. <laughs> and mm-hmm. literally, there will be 70 or 80 categories of spending. The school boards don't have a good grasp of it. Often educational administrators don't either. And so when program specialists say, legally, you have to spend this on this, usually we don't have the knowledge to argue back, even though a lot of times they're making it up. And so I think as long as the system is that complicated, it's going to be very hard to even figure out which expenditures work better. Nate Levinson, a superintendent in Massachusetts for a while, he has done a lot of work on how to spend money more effectively, but we don't really pay much attention to that. Leaders don't, school boards don't. And the result is that when these long-term, usually they go in for five or eight years, school finance cases go on. At the end of the day, there are usually some modest changes, nearly always increases in what we spend. But whether they have any impacts is is usually fairly unclear. And using different methodologies, you can say they have modest positive impacts, or you can say they have no impact at all. (laughs) But I know a lot of lawyers and a lot of expert testimony folks, some of my friends, make a lot of money out of this. I'm not sure this is the best way to spend our energy. I'm not sure either. And the other question that comes to my mind, and maybe it's because I'm very Bay State centric here, is that it feels like we're in an era where tests are increasingly super unpopular. And there might be some good reasons for that. But accountability is really up against a wall. And if we are going to say that accountability for outcomes, I don't even know what it's going to look like in the next five years. But if we're going to dramatically increase funding for schools without also attaching expectations to accountability for outcomes. I mean, it would be a great world, right? In which if you could say to schools, if you could say to school districts, we're going to trust you to spend this money in a way that helps kids learn and kids actually do learn, (laughs) maybe we could feel justified in how the money is being spent, right? This sort of like loose tight model of we're just going to hold like, like the charter model, as you mentioned, when the charter model works, and I too was a charter school board chair and have to help close a school, right? When the charter model works, we close schools when they don't perform well and they stop getting that taxpayer money. Not true in our public school sector. So I think the other thing missing from this article to my mind is what does it mean if we're going to, and I think you're right, we're probably going to end up in schools getting more money and maybe in Pennsylvania, just maybe in some districts that could end up being a good thing. But if we're going to give schools more money, what do we expect as a return on investment? Not just as tax, taxpayers, but as citizens interested in making sure kids can get good jobs and, and the, the whole the field of educational leadership is just not oriented to doing that. I, you know, I've been through innumerable school board trainings, but also I've looked at how we train ed leaders, and they don't think in those terms. No, and a, a good don't. a good example of this: ask your local school board member how many teachers in the district are on an improvement plan, and they will never know, and and half of them don't know what an improvement plan is. And that would probably be also true in many cases of principals and superintendents. So we can't really even have that level of discussion about it. (laughs) We need long-term culture changes, I think, to have a more direct relationship between inputs and, and outputs. But it's also people don't really agree that academic outcomes are 
good or useful things. Many people running school districts feel, and superintendents have been pretty blunt with me about this. Some kids are going to score in the top 3%. Some kids are scoring in the bottom 10%. There's not much you can do about it. And I disagree with that mindset. And I can point to districts and charters that have had a lot of success with kids that were maybe a little harder to teach, but people don't want to hear it. <laughs> so you know. That's right. Well, and I dare those leaders, school leaders and administrators and others, though, to tell a parent that, well, your kid just was meant to be in the bottom 10%. So we're giving up. Well, that's that's where we're getting rid of the testing. So we wanted those conversations. <laughs> so There you go. But I know you've got a couple stories of the week on your mind as well. So what else has been piquing your interest in the past couple of days? Jay Matthews had a, a really interesting, two interesting stories, actually. One was on, he interviewed Larry Cuban, who's one of the grand old men of yeah. education policy. Tinkering Toward Utopia, yes. Tinkering Toward Utopia, so my students read. It's a wonderful title book. Uh, in Cuban. He's got 22 books. And he basically said, as a, you know, as a young person going into education, he thought we could change all sorts of things. And then over time, he became convinced that education is more a product of society rather than a creator of society. And we can sort of make incremental adjustments. And he argues that we are making incremental adjustments and many of them are positive, more opportunities for kids to gain acceleration, for example, by taking college courses. But he's really more oriented towards the limits of what systems can do. I would argue, and Larry Cuban is brilliant, met him at a conference 20 years back. He's also, I think, a delightful person, great teacher, great researcher. I would argue he's a little too negative in terms of what we could do. I think that we've been hampered by... A few things that he doesn't really talk about. One is that really ever since the cardinal principles of education issued back in 1918, cardinal principles of secondary education, the primary driver of secondary schooling in particular has not been content. It's been sort of life adjustment, work adjustment. And that we were sort of able to manage that as long as women and African-Americans had very few other career options. So I had some teachers back in the 70s of that old breed who were black or women, or in some cases, both, who were amazing, right? Because they weren't allowed to do other things. So we had that captive labor pool. My sister-in-law is African-American. She's a very successful banker. Her mom was a teacher for 35 years. She would never be a teacher, right? She can do anything now. And teaching is not what she's going to do. We've had a, a diminution of the human capital going into teaching over the last 50 years as women and blacks have. And I think it's a great thing, by the way. We, I don't want to turn back the clock. But 1970, we had amazing people going into education because they literally didn't have other options. Now they're doing other things. And so the human capital going into teaching is a lot lower than it was. And along with that, we haven't really had curriculum for the most part for the last century. And so I think the chickens on that are really coming home to roost in a lot of ways in people being seduced by tweets and by things that sound good, like 1619, when they're often not really compatible with academic content or with science, with people not being able to articulate why, you know, the January 6th insurrection was really not a good thing, why the 2020 riots were really not the right way to change policy. We're not teaching kids content. And so they're falling into all kinds of traps, which actually in a lot of ways is what our speaker will be about today, what Mark Barline is, is writing about. So I'm a little more I think Larry Cuban's more of an optimist. He said there are some positive changes going on, and certainly there are. I see more negative changes, I think, because in part of the ideology of the education profession, I'll, get, I'll leave with one example. When I was on school board, 
one principal I know was telling me, he's a board-winning principal, he's a nice guy personally, he was saying, well, you know, we don't really have to hire math teachers who know math because kids can download it. And I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I said, and that's a very common view. He was uh, candid enough that he shared it. Uh, I was complaining that a lot of kids, including my kid, were learning algebra from teachers who didn't know algebra, that in some cases he had hired. And I said, okay, if you believe this, are you going to hire an offensive line coach for the football team who doesn't know how to protect the quarterback from a blitz? Because, you know, the kids can download it, right? They can teach themselves. It'd be better learning. And he said, well, well that's different. And I said, I, I know it's different. You care about football, right? We need more ed leaders who care about content if we're going to be able to translate more resources into more success. We also need to reshape leadership in other ways. People who go into education are people who love schools as they are. They love the activities, they love content, they love constant change. But for a lot of kids, especially kids without dads in the home, we need more stability. We need situations where, you know, when you didn't have a different football coach every year, maybe for elementary in particular, you shouldn't have the same teacher every year. We need to find ways to build continuity into schooling. And some people like William Mucci have written very good things about that, that we in the ed leadership field, we on school boards are, are pretty much unaware of. I am, I guess, more, Larry Cuban is a brilliant analyst. I love his work, but I think in some ways he's missing the boat on this. Yeah, I'd like to just tack on a little bit to what you're saying about some of what's in leaving aside the really important conversation that nobody seems to have cracked the code on yet, which is how do you actually attract really competent, exciting, content-oriented individuals <laughs> into the profession of teaching because we're doing a miserable job. And in fact, the thing that's worrying me even more is obviously the past two years have pushed really competent people out of the profession of teaching. And now what we're seeing is a rash of stopgap, desperate measures, understandably, I think, but not well thought out, to get bodies into classrooms to, I'm sorry, in many cases, probably babysit the children rather than teach them. Everything from emergency laws to let people who are completely and utterly unqualified be in classrooms for extended periods of time to, I think, a lowering of certification standards. And that's not, and we can debate whether certification is the right thing or not, but a lowering of standards generally. And I'm personally kind of scared. That's not to say it's happening everywhere. I think we are seeing some innovative ideas about how you can get people interested in the profession of teaching younger on, innovative ideas about how we can entice people to be educated, content area. I'm a big fan of having a concentration in math before you're going to become a math teacher. And, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. it shouldn't lead with pedagogy. Let's lead with yeah. content. But really focusing on how do you say to those kids who are math majors, hey, I'll pay for your education if you would like to become a teacher. But by the way, you're going to need to stick around. So there's some of that going on. But what I'm seeing a lot more of across the country is instead this reactive, like, we just need bodies in the classroom because otherwise we're going to have to close our schools. And guess what parents don't want us to do anymore? So <laughs> this is like a really, this is a big issue. And I think that given all of the learning lost during the pandemic, we haven't even begun to have the conversation about what continued learning loss is going to look like because of this just mass exodus of qualified people from the profession, both before the pandemic and now in the wake of it. So I agree with you on many of those points. Yeah, it's a huge issue. Honestly, one of the strangest things I've found on, on a school board, at least, is that a lot of times we don't even really want to hire amazing teachers because 
if you don't treat them they well. They might want more money. <laughs> they, might, they probably will want more money. If you don't treat them well, they will leave for other jobs. So a lot of times I've seen a leadership really kind of purposely pick sort of second tier people when they have the choice of getting first tier people. It's a very interesting thing to watch when you, when you see how hiring is done. <laughs> That loops back to your point about how a lot of us aren't educated. A lot of school leaders and district leaders aren't educated about how money should be spent. Teachers are your number one resource. So as a former charter school board chair, if that science teacher or that math teacher needed more money to get them in the door, well, if my kids need math and science, let's do it. So not all schools have that flexibility. We need the flexibility to, you know, sweeten the package sometimes. And district schools with contracts have a lot. We have a hard time doing Good luck. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, you've already mentioned him. We've got a fantastic guest today. In just a few moments, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Bauerlein. Very excited about that. And we will be back with him and our Learning Curve listeners just after this. Sounds great. We're back, and we are so fortunate to have with us Mark Bauerlein. He is the senior editor at First Things and professor of English Emeritus at Emory University, where he has taught since earning his PhD in English at UCLA in 1989. For two years, he served as director of the Office of Research and Analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. His books include Literary Criticism and Autopsy, The Pragmatic Mind, Explorations in the Psychology of Belief, and, I love this, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. I'm going to talk to my children about that tonight at the dinner table. His essays have appeared in PMLA, Partisan Review, Wilson Quarterly, Commentary, and New Criterion. And his commentaries and reviews in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Boston Globe, Weekly Standard, The Guardian, Chronicle of Higher Education, and other national periodicals. Needless to say, must be a really lazy guy, not doing anything over there. Mark Bauerlein, welcome to the show. I'm glad to join you. Honored to be with the Pioneer Institute. You have been doing noble work for many, many years. Oh, they have been. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. That's a good shout out to our fearless producer, Jamie Gass and Michaela Dawson in the background. So Mark, we're here to talk about your academic background and your career. You have been grounded in the liberal arts and teaching literature. So talk a little bit about your foundational views about education. Bob and I were actually just talking about this, like content versus pedagogy, you know, what kids don't know and what teachers are and are not teaching. What do you think a sound education could look like for young people? And if you could include in there, because of your background, like what should they be reading? What should American high schoolers have read to be prepared, not just for college, but just to go on and live a good life? What do you think? This plays very well into my my update, my current update of that Dumbest Generation book, this recent book, because what I really argue there is that the education that adolescents need did not happen during that first decade of the third millennium. And it really comes into play what you say, what is a good liberal education all about? And I go back to non-ed school thinking, which says young people need, apart from the basic skills they need in math and technology and, and, and science, so they need to feel like they are entering into a long stream of civilization. 
They need to be acquainted with great books, great ideas, great words, great speeches, big events, big heroes, big villains, great love stories, tales of passion, honor and dishonor, and betrayal as well, so that they are stepping into a world when they leave the home, when they leave adolescence, that they live in the shadow of greatness, that there is great beauty and sublimity, purpose and meaning, and even transcendence awaiting them that can be their inheritance. And that means they need to leave school with a little acquaintance with Lady Macbeth, with Hector and Achilles fighting outside the walls of Troy. They need to know the great love stories of Tristan and Isolde, Dido and Aeneas, great works of art that show them the visualization of David, the statue of Michelangelo's David, the great works of architecture like the American skyscraper circa 1930. These are monuments that can come into their lives and send them into adulthood with the equipment to deal with the inevitable disappointments, the tragedies that happen. It gives them a reservoir that steadies them as the pressures of the day of current events and politics and everything else hit them. So it's a rather old-fashioned idea of broad civilizational education that the ed schools really don't talk about anymore. The pedagogy yeah. discussions, more about skills, common core didn't, it made a few gestures in that direction, but it was really all about analytical reading, reading like a detective, as David Coleman put it, little snippets that turn reading into a mechanical exercise of interpretation, which I regard was an impoverishment of what the reading life is supposed to do. As a reader, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I have to relay that I was telling my 12-year-old daughter last night that she needs to start reading Jane Austen. <laughs> she looked at me as if I had 18 heads, and she was like, oh, my goodness, this old stuff. And I thought, exactly to the point you're just making, these are the stories that teach you so much about life. And maybe it's just getting old, but I look at younger people and think that they're not very resilient. So I love that that is a part of your argument for reading through literature. I let wanted, me, let me wanted, say... Let me yeah. say one thing about that. You tell your daughter, listen, identification with Elizabeth Bennett is so much better than identification with the latest YouTube star. Okay? Tell me about it. And hopefully she'll still say, I don't understand what YouTube is because I try my best to keep her away. But we, we shall see. But now you also touch upon this idea, and it won't shock anybody to know that I agree with you having formerly taught in ed school, that the way we now think about what kids should be reading and as well as how we teach reading has really led to some just disastrous results, I think, especially if we look back to recent years. I've got some great colleagues at Excel and Ed, my day job, that are working really hard to promote different approaches to literacy in our schools, sound approaches to literacy. But you know a lot about this because you were instrumental in producing NEA's Reading at Risk study, a survey of literary reading in America. And that was even like 15, 20 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that report and a little bit more about what's going on to really negatively impact 
students' reading habits, which leads to decreases in student achievement. Yeah, that was a report that we did at the NEA when I was there. And every 10 years, we would do a survey of public participation in the arts. We would ask how often do you go to museums, to the symphony, how often do you listen to jazz and go to see dance? And we also added how often do you read literature? And what we found in the 2002 findings was that from 82 and 92, the amount of reading of literature that 18 to 24 year olds did plummeted. It went way down. And we weren't talking about classic literature, Shakespeare. We would take any novels, any poems and plays that you read. We also asked about book reading in general. And only 43% of young people read in their leisure time all year long any literature at all. This was shocking to us. It was a big drop from preceding efforts. And I took that show on the road and did a lot of conferences and panels. And boy, the amazing thing was how the professional educators rejected these findings. I had English people, reading people say, what's the big deal? So they're not reading as much. You know, cultures change. People do different things. That was That's actually an actual quote from what someone said on a panel. And I couldn't believe this. I said, look, you're English your literature people, why aren't you defending your own materials? I can't imagine mathematicians getting up there and saying, yeah, you know, people don't need to know any math. What's the big deal? But somehow the (laughs) humanities professionals lost their capacity to defend their own materials. They watched while universities got rid of literature course requirements. They stood by while standards got rid of any specific literary content and turned reading again into this skills, technical capacity. And I'm a votary of Edie Hirsch's core knowledge, which says reading is not just this abstract skill. You have to know things. You have to know about the Civil War already in order to really comprehend a passage about the Civil War. You know, you're losing the contents of civilization when you emphasize these abstract mental skills like critical thinking and problem solving and reading comprehension and identify the main idea, blah, blah, blah. I mean, one of the things that that does is what a bore this turns reading (laughs) in for kids. I mean, who wants to read when this is what it's about? What evidence does the author summon in order to back up? No, we need drama. We need close involvement of human beings with these materials. I mean, the Gettysburg Address, memorize it, internalize these phrases from Lincoln. Lincoln internalized phrases from the King James Bible. That's one of the things that made him such a great writer. We need to have young people internalize Martin Luther King's last speech the night before he was assassinated. In this new book, I actually hold up Malcolm X and what happened to him in prison as a model for millennials to follow as they try to make their lives a little better by learning a little more that they didn't learn about what they didn't learn when they were in high school in 2007. Let's pick that up. Let's talk a little bit more about this new book. It's a companion volume to a prescient 2008 book the dumbest generation. And this is the dumbest generation grows up. I want you to, if you could tell us 
two things. Tell us about the main findings of this book, which a lot of it is about social media, internet, et cetera. And am I a crazy person to withhold an iPhone from my kids until the last possible moment and confiscate their school computers at night so they can't go on YouTube and Instagram and all of these things that scare the heck out of me? What do you think? You are doing absolutely the right thing. That's all and I We know to this because... <laughs> We did this massive social experiment in the first decade of the third millennium where we let teenagers go into their bedrooms, turn on all the screens. They had the music. They had the iPhone, the handhelds of various kinds. They had Facebook, the social media. They had the pictures. They were texting all the time. They enveloped themselves in youth culture and peer pressure, and adult stuff couldn't make its way into that bubble that they had formed. And it went on for years. They were inside that room and they could shut out everything they didn't like. If someone said something on Facebook, just unfriend that person. If you get a text you don't like, just block that person. I mean, we talk about cancel culture today. Millennials started canceling when they were 12 years old. They could manufacture a youth reality that was all affirming, all about themselves. I mean, they rate highly now at age 33 on narcissism. Who would have thought that they would rate highly on narcissism when they could walk around with 250 photos of themselves in their pockets <laughs> all the time? My gosh, we gave them the tools to extend adolescence. And also at the time, there were all these cheerleaders for the millennials. They're amazing. They're ambitious. They're way ahead of us boomers. We have to ask them how to turn on our iPhone. They're going to lead America into the 21st century. Well, we're 15 years beyond that time. How are they doing? As I said, narcissism is up. Depression is up. Anxiety is up. Suicide is up. Job dissatisfaction is high among millennials. They're not marrying and having kids at nearly the rate the boomers did. One third of millennial men will now never have married by age 40 and probably never will. So they're hitting adulthood they're facing paying bills and taxes and you know trying to find better jobs and so on and they don't have that civilizational equipment to cope with manage understand absorb the things that hit them in life they don't go to church they're not patriots only one third of them call themselves patriots so they don't have a country that they can dedicate themselves they're not having kids which gives you purpose and meaning and self-sacrifice they're still on their own, and they were told when they were 15, happiness, success, is building your Facebook network to hundreds and hundreds of friends. Well, you know what? You're 33 now. That doesn't seem to work. And now they're bitter, sour, disappointed, and some of them are marching up and down the streets and breaking windows. You've sort of covered our next question, so I'll modify it a little bit in your book. You talk brilliantly about how activists from the 60s and even the 80s would talk a lot about policy things to do, you know, don't trade with South Africa or, right, or, or pull out of Vietnam. And more recent activists are talking just about themselves and they want some cosmic level of respect. And I wonder if you'd like to get a little more into that and what are some of the implications for democracy? Well, they personalized the universe so much so that the activism is very much based upon, I'm offended. You have committed a microaggression against me, against my identity, against who I am. If you ask them 
much about politics or history or the history of racism in America, they don't have much of an answer. I mean, we know every time the, the NAEP exam is given to 12th graders in U.S. history, more than half of them score below basic, which is an F. Let, let's call it a fail. So they don't know that much, but they don't need to know that much because they know how they feel. They know what their identity is and what people are supposed to do with that identity. They know what it means about respect and disrespect. This is, again, a personalization of the public sphere that makes everyone thin-skinned. The First Amendment requires that we live in a pluralistic society, so you're going to encounter disagreeable opinions. You're going to encounter people that are irksome to you, but you can't take offense all the time. You have to have a thicker skin. That's the world we live in. If this orange-haired monster wins an election in November 2016, you don't go nuts and, and have trauma. You organize politically. You say, we're going to beat him next time. You don't just say, resist. Well, resist what? Oh, I don't know. Just resist. I mean, come on. This is not the way to function as responsible citizens. Do you think you get to win every time? This is politics. Well, they do think that they should win every time. They do think that their guy, I mean, they went for Obama two to one in 2008. They think that their guy should win. Losing is very hard for them to face because again, they lived in this artificial utopia when they were young where you do get to win all the time. You do get to choose your reality. You do get to fabricate the identity you want to have and everyone has to affirm that. Well, here we are. Who cares about the past when the past was just a time of exploitation and injustice? We stand for justice. Why worry about what happened in the primeval ages of the 1970s? Come on. <laughs> you know, I talk a lot about how this started really at elite institutions in a lot of ways. Or did it? They're always, they're always at the forefront of social change. I mean, this is one thing we've learned. I was a big liberal when I was a graduate student at UCLA in the 80s and, and an assistant professor at Emory in the 90s. But I did have this kind of conservative education ideas. I believed in great books. I believed in Western Civ. I believed in a core canon of readings that everyone should have to read. And there were these novel things going on in the late 80s in the humanities. And post-colonialism, these were very exotic political identity-based formations within the humanities. And I thought, okay, let them do their stuff, you know, whatever. Uh, they got their own thing. No one's going to pay attention to them. <laughs> Little did I know that they now set Democratic Party policy. At, at the, they're very, they were very high in the Obama administration. People who passed through this formation, and not Joe Biden, has cranked it up even further. The identity politics of the academy, circa 1989, are now the identity politics of American society at large. What happens on campus will end up happening in America writ large. That's what the formula of the last 40 years of history has shown me. So what are the solutions long-term? Long well, in this new book, I lay out the case of Malcolm X. Now, I don't share Malcolm X's religion, that's for sure. But he goes into prison. He's a horrible person. He's a thug. He's a swine. 
He is a selfish, violent, exploitative individual. He's been caught in a burglary ring, sentenced to seven years or plus, and he goes into prison, and the other prisoners have a nickname for him, Satan, and he likes that nickname. And but one thing he says, I realized my working vocabulary was about 200 words, and every sentence had a profanity in it. But, you know, here in prison, that doesn't quite get me very far. On the street, oh, I was canny. Here, there's a man, an older man here, who speaks deliberately, good vocabulary, with knowledge. He's black. Everyone listens to him. Even the white guards stop and pay attention to him and respect him. This is in the 1950s. And Malcolm X, Malcolm Little, he realizes, you know, Knowledge is power. Words can mobilize you. So he starts reading, but he can't understand the words in the books. So he starts copying out the encyclopedia. He spends months writing down every every word, starting with aardvark. And he said, this is like an encyclopedia. He reads and reads and reads over years. He reads so much he ruins his eyes. He didn't have glasses before he went into prison. Now he does. But it was a conversion experience. A genuine conversion happened to him. And he comes out, he dresses well, coat and tie, he's thoughtful, he's deliberative. He says, I will never curse again. And when he sits across the table from adversaries, he actually listens to what they have to say. He's curious about what's going on in their minds. He's read literature, philosophy, history, the Bible. He says, white people are bad, but I want to know about them. He didn't say, you're all racist, you're sexist, I'm offended. He would never say that. He would debate, he would argue, he would make his points in a rational, discursive fashion, and you can see he's a happier person. He may feel he lives in an unjust society, but he has a center. He's grounded. He has a religion now, and it gives him a certain inner peace. You can tell when you see him speaking. Millennials, this is your model. Get off the network. Read, 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 study, get the great books, work at it. Transform yourself. We need to have this generation, which is now rootless, without meaning, purpose, value, and they're unhappy. They are unhappy, which shows it's not working for them. Bring them something better. Bring them a country of which they can be proud. Bring them a religion that can evoke from them prayer. Give them great movies with characters with whom they can identify in a positive fashion. You gotta reach out to the younger people in your personal life and show them there's so much better music out there than the junk you listen to. There's so many great stories with great role models in here that you can learn from. It's all waiting for you. There's a positive future for you personally. That's the push. And what a push it is makes me want to go read <laughs> and, good, and, good. and listen, listen to some better music, though. I have to say I did appreciate this past weekend Super Bowl performance. I could still love that part of it. Though I am not a millennial. Dr. <laughs> Mark Farline, thank you so much. Just always thought provoking and exciting. It's such a pleasure to have you on. And I know 
that my fearless co-host Bob feels the same I, I, way. This was this was great. This is great. It's a wonderful book, worthy successor to Dumbest Generation. Thank you. Glad to join you. Amazing. Well, the dumbest generation should go out and buy. <laughs> the dumbest generation <laughs> grows up. Thank you so much. Please take care, and we hope to speak with you soon. All right, listeners, we always close it out with our tweet of the week. This one from our friend of the show, Mike McShane. And he's always bringing the data on Twitter, bringing the charts. And Mike's tweet says, folks who advocate for the school choice movement to change its tactics should probably wrestle with this graphic first. If you look at the graphic, it basically shows just really overwhelming support for school choice on the part of parents. And that's what matters. The thing I really appreciate about this, thank you very much, Mr. McShane, is that there has been a lot of talk about how we should shift tactics in the school choice movement and who we should be talking to. I think we should always be talking to parents, folks. And that's what Mike seems to be saying here. So next week, we will be back as we always are. And we are going to be coming to you with Howard Bryant. He is a senior writer for ESPN, very cool, and the author of nine books, including Full Dissidents, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, and The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism fantastic looking forward to it until then bob Maranto, thank you so much for oh, joining me today it's been a pleasure to have you and we hope you come back soon i will all right fantastic take care 